Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. Listening to KSEF, a digital broadcast in Topeka, brought to you by 785 Magazine. Learn more at 785live.com. And now it's time for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday with your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. Hello, hello again, and welcome one more time to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75 Live. I am very excited to be here today to once again talk to you about the works of William Shakespeare. My thanks to everybody at KSEF and Carice for allowing me this opportunity to come to you and talk about the world's greatest playwright. My name is Shannon Riley. I am not a Shakespearean scholar. I do not claim to be one. But I am someone who deeply loves the works of William Shakespeare. And I've been taking apart one play at a time, going through the entire catalog that is William Shakespeare's known works. And today, I'm up to one of my favorites. It's actually a play that I've had the pleasure of not only acting in, it was the first Shakespearean play I ever acted in, but I've also had the pleasure of directing this show twice. And both times, it was a monumental experience for me. So I'm really excited to be here today to talk to you about Shakespeare's romantic and, dare I say, musical comedy, Twelfth Night. This was written in 1601 or 1602, definitely by 1602. It's right at the end of one of Shakespeare's most prolific periods, where he had just finished Hamlet, of all things, as well as Julius Caesar and some amazing plays. So this is really a play right on the cusp of all of these great works. And it was written at a very special time. Twelfth Night itself means the twelfth day of Christmas. It was the last day of the Christmas celebration, twelve days since the birth of Christ, celebrated on December the 25th. And the twelfth day is twelve days later for the Epiphany. Now, in Elizabethan times, this is a holiday that was marked by festivals, feasting, celebrations. They celebrated Christmas differently than we did. And uh, uh, go back and take a look at my podcast that I did on Shakespeare and Christmas because it was very, very different. Christmas was rather austere. They didn't share presents at Christmas Day. They shared presents on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. But they didn't do it at Christmas. Christmas was a time of fasting, of prayer, of thinking about your own life and your, your Christian responsibilities. So it was not really the time of partying. But Twelfth Night was. It was the final night, and it was filled with feastings, revelries, and a feast of fools. Matter of fact, very often the celebrations of this festival were led by someone called the Lord of Misrule. It was usually a servant in the house or a person that was appointed by the mayor or the whoever is in charge of your principality. 
And that person was to direct all the festivities to masks and song and dance and mummery, as they called it. So it was a time of great celebration, and it was a time to let loose. So what you see in Twelfth Night is a play that is celebrated, that is celebrating all the things that are fun and joyous and should be given into on this particular day. There's a couple of very unique things about Twelfth Night. Twelfth Night has two titles. Shakespeare called it Twelfth Night or What You Will. And a lot has been made by scholars over the year of why there are two titles. It's the only Shakespeare play to have two titles. One is the subtitle, uh, or what you will, but it's still what two titles for a play. So what does this mean, or what you will? Well, some scholars have said it was because it was written as a gig. It was for a very select group of lawyers and noblemen for Queen Elizabeth's court who were there to celebrate the festival of Twelfth Night, and that Shakespeare himself wasn't necessarily invested in the play. He just put something out there for fun. Or it could be really what you will leads into that very idea of what the festival was about. Letting go, doing whatever you wanted to do, whatever you willed yourself to do. I believe that's the case because there's nothing very simplistic or thrown away about the way Shakespeare wrote this play. It is brilliantly written. He returns to a trope he's used three other times, though, for this, but that's based a lot on the fact that it was for this festival. The trope I'm referring to is a woman dressing as a man. This goes all the way back to one of his earlier plays, Two Gentlemen of Verona. He uses it again in as you like it, and then again, for a short time, in The Merchant of Venice, when he has Portia dress up as a lawyer. But here, it's used in a very different way. Viola is our character who turns herself into Cesario. She poses as a man, but she does it out of a necessity to keep herself out of trouble. Now, I shouldn't get too far ahead because I want to go through the synopsis because unfortunately, even though this is one of Shakespeare's most wonderful comedies, it's one that not a lot of people know, which is a shame because I think it's actually of all of Shakespeare's comedies, maybe perhaps of all of his works, it is the easiest, most accessible play, I think, to a modern audience. It's very similar to a French farce in a lot of ways, with mistaken identities, plots upon plots, people sneaking around and plotting on each other, and it is actually a very sweet love story. So let me go through the synopsis, but before I do that, we always stop for a moment for my boy to remind us that it's... And now, the Shakespeare quote of the week. That's right, the Shakespeare quote of the week. I gotta be honest, Twelfth Night does not have a lot of very memorable quotes. It's not one of those plays that was written for introspection, to talk about the human condition or life in general. It was a play that focused on love and art, and it's, for that reason, a very, very sweet play. I will argue that it has one of the most famous opening lines of any of his plays. It opens with Duke Orsino, who says, If music be the food of love, play on. That is a quote that is still used very often today. There's some also very, very funny quotes that maybe haven't caught on, but they should. For instance, Festy says in Act 1, Scene 5, Many a good hanging prevents a bad marriage. (laughs) Festy, who is the main clown, by the way, also says in Act 1, Scene 5, Better a witty fool than a foolish wit. Viola has a very neat quote when she finds out that Lady Olivia, who she's been taking love notes to from Duke Arsenio, has fallen in love with her. So she says this quote in Act 2, Scene 2, O time, thou must untangle this, not I, for it is too hard a knot for me to untie. I just love the cadence of that particular quote. Fastiosa says in Act 3, Scene 1, Foolery, sir, does walk about the orb like the sun. It shines everywhere. So there's some nice quotes from Twelfth Night. I really know that it's not a highly quotable play, 
but it is really a charming story. For our story, we head off to a mythical country by the name of Illyria, which is ruled by the Duke Orsinio. Orsinio is in despair. He's madly in love with the Countess Olivia, who also lives in Illyria, but she has forsworn any company of man for seven years over the death of her brother while she remains in mourning. The Duke, every day, sends a messenger with his love epistles to her, and every day, that messenger returns, unable to even get an audience with Countess Olivia. Now nearby, off the shores, a ship hits some rocks and sinks. A few sailors are able to make it to the shore and they bring with them a young girl who was aboard the boat by the name of Viola. Viola, who was aboard the ship when the storm hit, is lamenting the loss of her twin brother Sebastian, who she saw pulled under the waves during the torrent of the storm. She resolves to make a new life for herself in Illyria, but she knows that being a young woman unaccompanied by men is dangerous. So the sailors decide to help her by disguising her as a boy so she can find employment as a young man and hopefully find some peace and happiness here in Illyria. Very soon, she is found dressed as a boy named Cesario and in the employ of Arsenio. Arsenio, who believes him to be a boy, sends Cesario, Viola, to Countess Olivia with her epistles of love, demanding that this time she stand at the gate and not leave until Olivia herself takes the messages. She does so, and Olivia does meet with her, and Olivia likes the look of Cesario. In fact, she starts to fall madly in love with him almost right away. She takes the letters, but tells him to leave. And the moment he's gone, she feels depressed that he has already left. So she sends for her steward, Malvolio. Now, Malvolio is a very stern, very pragmatic man. He is anti-anything that is joy. But she gives Malvolio a ring and says, take this ring to this young man who was just here and tell him that he dropped it and also entreat him to return tomorrow. Malvolio does so, running after her, although he doesn't like the job. And this starts the triangle love story that will predominate the rest of the play. The story of Olivia loving Viola and Viola loving Arsenio and Arsenio loving Olivia. In Act 2, it's late at night and we find some people in Olivia's house making merry themselves. First, it's her uncle, Sir Toby Belch. Toby Belch is a fantastic role. Imagine Falstaff, but with a temper. He's funny. He's quick. He loves to drink and party. But if you cross him, he will also draw swords on you. He's a very unique character, and I think Toby Belch has been very overlooked over the years. Anyway, it's late in the night. He's partying with a, uh, one of Olivia's servants, Mariah, and his dear friend, Sir Andrew Egucci, who has arrived to Olivia's house to try and woo her himself. However, she has no interest in Sir Andrew Egucci at all. So Andrew Egucci tells Toby that he's going to leave, that his being here is pointless. But Toby doesn't want him to leave because he's been paying for all the beer and food that they've been getting. So he tricks him into staying even a little bit longer and they continue to party loudly into the night. When Malvolio is woken, storms down, screams at them for their improper behavior and tells them that he will report them to the Mistress Olivia the next day. Certain that they want to get even with this boorish lout, Sir Toby, Sir Andrew Aguchik and Mariah plot to get even with him. Mariah comes up with a great idea. She can write very much in the handwriting of her mistress, Countess Olivia. She'll leave a note where Malvolio can find it, where she confesses her mad love for Malvolio. And they'll watch as Malvolio falls madly in love with his mistress. In that letter, she will demand Malvolio to appear to her in yellow stockings and cross-guarded, smiling constantly, which is something Malvolio just does not do. All of these things are things that Olivia will hate. Since she's in mourning for her brother, yellow and bright colors have been forbidden 
and smiling is the last thing she wants to see. But all is set and all is planned to bring Malvolio down the next day. The letter is dropped and left in a courtyard. Malvolio comes upon it, reads it out loud, and confesses his own love and decides he will do everything that he has been asked to do. So he shows up, cross-guarded to the Countess, and smiling. They tell him that Malvolio has gone mad, and Countess Olivia immediately orders for him to be locked up as a madman, and he is taken away. Now, meanwhile, Viola's twin brother, Sebastian, has survived the shipwreck after all, and he comes to Illyria with a sea captain by the name of Antonio. Now, Antonio is taking a risk even being here. He is under threat of death should he ever show up in Illyria because he's a pirate, but he's there, and his love for Sebastian makes him give Sebastian his purse and tell him to go and find lodgings, and they will meet later at a very popular restaurant known as The Elephant. Now in Act 3, so Andrew's affections for Olivier lead him to be jealous of Cesario and all the attention that Cesario is getting when he comes every day to see the Countess. So, Sir Toby decides to play a prank on his dear friend and arrange for a fight, a duel between Sir Andrew Aguecheek and Cesario. He convinces Sir Andrew Aguecheek that Cesario is a child, terrified, a wimp, and he will easily defeat him, and by doing so he will win the hand of the Countess Olivia. In the meantime, they send message to Cesario and say, You are about to be challenged by this great and powerful duke. Be ready to fight him, but be aware. This great and powerful lord by the name of Sir Andrew Aguecheek, be prepared to fight him. Well, Cesario doesn't want to fight any more than Sir Andrew Aguecheek does, which leads to the funniest and most pathetic duel in history. In the middle of their fake fight, when they're just kind of slapping swords at each other and trying not to get hurt, who should come upon them but Antonio, the pirate captain? Who thinks that Cesario is his dear friend Sebastian? He jumps in in his place with a sword and immediately starts to fight them. He smacks back Andrew Cheek and Sir Toby Belch picks up his arms and goes into attack and he too is beaten back by Antonio. Two guards come upon the fight and immediately recognize Antonio as a pirate and arrest him and take him off to jail. But as he's being taken off to jail, he calls to Sebastian saying, Give me my purse, I'll need it for my bail. But it's not Sebastian, it's Cesario, who has no idea what he's talking about and has no money to give him. And he's dragged away, swearing that Sebastian has abandoned him. Okay, that's the first three acts of our show. I'm going to get to acts four and five after the break. But I want to pause for a moment for a couple of things. One is, I want to say how funny this play is. And if you are someone who is just a light listener to my podcast, or someone who has a slight interest, but the idea of Shakespeare kind of scares you, I'm going to implore you, if there's any play that is a great way to start your love for theater and your love for Shakespeare, it's Twelfth Night. It's very easy to follow. The characters are funny and strong, and it's a great introduction for anyone who wants to experience Shakespeare live. Watch a video of this wonderful show. If you are a young director and you're looking to introduce Shakespeare into your theater, this is a great introduction. It's very funny, very light, and it's exactly what we did at TCT when we wanted to introduce Shakespeare again after, well, decades of not having it performed on our stage. And it was a huge hit. So take a look at Twelfth Night. And if you're a teacher out there and you want to introduce your kids to Shakespeare, your class is going to love it. Check out Twelfth Night. I'm going to take a short break. And on the other side, we will talk about the rest of Twelfth Night and its wonderful history. I'll see you in a few. (laughs) 
right here is where I would say now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com. Welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Shunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. My name is Shannon Riley, and it is my pleasure to bring you the news about William Shakespeare every Sunday on the 8th. And today we are talking about the play Twelfth Night. I said as we closed the first half that if you are a teacher or a director and you want to introduce Shakespeare to your audience or your class, take a look at Twelfth Night. You know, it's exactly what TCT did. It was the first Shakespearean play we put on our stage after being removed from our theater stage for many, many years. Matter of fact, before Twelfth Night, which we did in, I believe, 2002, Shakespeare had not been done for over 50 years on TCT's stage. And now it's about every other year. It was a great opportunity we had to introduce the great works of William Shakespeare in a completely non-threatening way with a very, very funny piece. That's Twelfth Night. As we left the first half of our podcast, we had two people hauled away. First of all, there's Antonio, who's in jail for being in Illyria in the first place. He was a pirate who had been sworn that if he ever returned to Illyria, he would be arrested by the Duke's men, and indeed, he is now off in jail, angry at Sebastian, who has abandoned him to his fate. But worst of all is what happens to Malvolio. And Malvolio, who has been treated as if he has gone mad, is locked up in an insane asylum. Toby, Mariah, and the clown Festy decide to visit him. Mariah and Toby talk Festy into dressing up as a curate, kind of priest, to visit Malvolio and convince him he's mad. So Festy does. He dresses up as Sir Topaz and goes to visit Malvolio. He tortures him uses his own words against him, makes him cry, until finally Malvolio begs, please give me a pen and paper so I can write to Mistress Olivia. He goes back and reports back what he has done and said to Sir Toby, who's watched the whole thing anyway, and Sir Toby, now afraid he's going to be in deep trouble for what he's done to his niece's servant, decides indeed to give him a pen and paper, and he wishes he were well beyond this jest. It's just gone too far. Now, I miss a scene that took place in Act 3, I need to go back and explain. After the fight with Antonio, Sir Toby goes chasing after Cesario to certain that he wants to cuff him across the ears and teach him a lesson for fighting him. But instead, he runs into Sebastian, and Sebastian beats the crap out of Sir Toby Belch. Realizing that he has just beaten this man who has run off, his niece, Olivia, comes upon him, thinking that Cesario expresses her love for him and takes him away. So, now, you needed that bit of piece of information as we go into Act 5. In Act 5, Antonio is brought before Arsenio, who is sitting there with Cesario. He accuses Cesario of betraying him. Well, just then, the real Sebastian arrives and apologizes for fighting Sir Toby. The twins see each other and they discover they are each both still alive. Arsenio's fool, Festi, brings a letter from Malvolio on his release. And Malvolio's letter re- reveals that he is the butt of Mariah and Sir Toby's joke and that Sir Toby has married Mariah to thank her for the wonderful Jess. He is immediately released from prison, and at the same time, Antonio is forgiven by Arsenio, and a wedding is planned that would involve Arsenio marrying the now-female Viola and Sebastian to marry Olivia. All love reigns supreme, and madness has ended. And that's our story of Twelfth Night. 
It's really, it's very, very charming. But also, if you think about when it was written, again, this is my cardinal rule, always remember when Shakespeare wrote his works, this was written for that 12th day of Christmas celebration. And there's evidence that it was repeated year after year. It was certainly never published until the folio in 1623, so it's very likely that the company held on to it so they had something to do for Christmas celebrations. They probably only performed it around Christmas time, although today our audiences don't really equate Twelfth Night with the Twelfth Day of Christmas. Matter of fact, there's nothing really Christmassy all about it. It's much more like Valentine's Day with silliness. So, this madness and unruliness that existed during Twelfth Night festivals plays really well into Sir Toby Belch and his character. He is a man of drinks and cakes and ale. He loves to party, and so do his friends. Malvolio, on the other hand, is that strict rule that people have to live by. And that really describes Elizabethan England to a T. People had to live very strict lives. You were expected to toe your own, do your job, work hard. This was a tough way to live. A lot of poverty and a lot of living hand to mouth. So having a festival where you can just let loose one day and allow yourself to experience misrule was something very much appreciated by the Elizabethan audiences. And someone like Malvolio was someone who they really wanted to make fun of and wanted to torture. But of course, like all good parties, it has to eventually come to an end. But when it does, it ends, as all good comedies should, with dual weddings here. Actually, three, if you count the offstage wedding of Sir Toby Belch and Mariah. But one more thing should be mentioned here, and it's one of the biggest themes of the show, and it again is about gender. Every now and then, Shakespeare makes a ploy to talk about gender and gender roles in society. He does it here again, and he picks his festival for a couple of reasons. First of all, in all the mix of the festival of Twelfth Night, that night of celebrations, there was costume contests. People would dress up in various costumes. Often servants would dress as their masters. Masters would dress as their servants. An also common theme that was seen in all these masquerades was men dressing as women and women dressing as men. It was a party. It was just a fun thing to do. So taking a female character and dressing her as a male fit in perfectly with the idea of this particular night, since many of the people in attendance watching would be cross-dressing. Shakespeare does this not only to play off of the idea of the cross-dressing that is going on in his audience, but also to play off on really what is gender, what is the need of gender. You see the men in the play, the piratey men like Sebastian or Antonio, who are good with swords, can fight and maintain control. But they express massive love for each other in a way that you and I would find a little bit different in our time period. Now, I have dear male friends that are my friends that I hold very close in my heart, but I rarely say to them, hey, I love you and I would die for you. Yet these people express it openly and honestly. Then you have Arsenio, who is Duke and Lord of the Manor. He is in charge of everything he surveys. Yet he is deeply in love, forlorn, and filled with emotion. He almost weeps at times. Orsinio is the expression of unchecked passion and emotion. And it's in this male form. Whereas his counterpart, Countess Olivier, is buttoned up, strict, severe, emotions held tight. This is a masculine idea 
of emotion and control. This cross-gender purposes that Shakespeare plays in Twelfth Night really bring to the forefront the question of what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman. And he does not answer the question. He simply puts it there so that his audiences can think about it. What really kind of excites me is that I've directed this show twice, but the second time I directed the play was with what would become later known as the Lady Shakes Company here in Topeka. It was a cast of all women playing all of the roles. Now, when you think back into Shakespeare's time, remember that young boys played all the female roles. So you had a man dressing as a woman, and in Viola's case, once again, dressing as a man and trying to interpret what a man is. But when I did the show with my entire cast of women, everybody was basically cross-dressing. And a magnificent show to really play off of this idea. I bet Shakespeare would have liked what we had done. I bet he would have been excited about it. I know I was. And I'm very proud of the Lady Shakes who have now gone on to do an all-female production of Midsummer's Night Dream that we just recently produced here in Topeka. It's a really neat time when you can take the works of William Shakespeare and allow everybody to experience them. Women often don't get to play these really big, meaty roles. I love it when the roles are changed and reversed. I loved it. I love it when people of color are introduced to a world that they are not normally portrayed in and bring it to life in their own way. It's a terrific, terrific opportunity with Shakespeare to really produce Shakespeare and do it in the way you want to do it. Finally, I'm going to close on one other element that I think is pretty interesting about Twelfth Night, and that is Shakespeare's inability to imagine foreign lands well. <laughs> they often talk about Shakespeare and where he went during his missing years. This is a period right, right after he got married until he starts writing in London. There's about seven and nine years in there where we're not certain where Shakespeare is. Some people believe he's back in Stratford-on-Avon working in his father's glove shop until one day a passing theater company comes through and he convinces them to take him along with him back to London. Well, maybe that could have happened. Some people believe he went off to teach, which is also quite possible. Teaching in the Northlands, for instance, in the heavily Catholic area, is one of the strongest stories about what Shakespeare did during that period. Certainly, he was educated enough to take on the role of a schoolmaster in a very small manor house or someone who was looking for a tutor. Some people have argued that he traveled abroad, maybe even down into the Mediterranean, which is why he set so many of his shows there. This is preposterous to me. You just didn't get up and travel. It was hard to get out unless you were a merchant seaman or a part of the Navy. Shakespeare had no interest and did none of these things. And Illyria here is a fine example. Now, it's supposed to be this a nation, as it were, on the Adriatic Sea. Some scholars have put it where Bosnia-Herzegovina is. Maybe, yeah, sure, that's, that's, that's possible. Thing is, is... Shakespeare immediately then populates it with people who have Italian names, and then he gives them English relatives. Sir Toby Belch, Sir Andrew Aguecheek. He immediately populates his comedies and his plays with what he knows, English society. You could have very easily picked up this entire play and dropped it in a principality in England, and it would have played just as well. It's believed that there was a visiting Italian duke during that this period, who came to stay with Queen Elizabeth 
during the Christmas celebrations. And that's who Duke Orsino is based on. Kind of a welcome to our country. Here's a play where we stuck your character in it. <laughs> it, it is a very possible. It's certain that he is based the play itself on some very old stories, some that came from Plattus, some that came from Italian short novelettes, and this is one of them. But it is English through and through. It is all that Shakespeare knew. And I just don't think the idea that Shakespeare traveled really holds any water whatsoever. This is also a play towards the end of his most prolific period. There's a little break here before he has other plays, but is that really true? We just don't know how many plays Shakespeare wrote that may now be lost. Some scholars think up to as many as 30-some plays could be lost. I guess that's possible. I find that hard to believe. We do know of two before. We have titles for The Tragedy of Cardinio and Love's Labors One. They could indeed have been plays that we have lost. Especially Love Labors One, I think, because Love Labors Lost had such an unsatisfying ending. It ends with marriages being promised, but since the king had died, a year of mourning had to take place, and so the lovers are separated for a year. It makes sense that Shakespeare would have revisited this story to bring the lovers back together again, but we don't know. The play's gone. There's also The Tragedy of Cardinio. That is also a great loss because that was based on the works of Miguel Cervantes, who wrote the stories of Man of La Mancha. The idea that these two people who were living and writing were in the same period of time, separated by two countries, but were the greatest writers of their particular country of origin, had come together in a play that Shakespeare wrote. It's depressing to think that it's gone. But I do still have one song and one scene, and I do have a hope that one day these two plays, if not more, may someday be found on some dusty shelf somewhere. Huh, you can dream. But we don't know how many plays William Shakespeare ultimately wrote. But I do know he wrote Twelfth Night, and I do know you need to see it. So, do yourself a favor this week. Sit back and watch a great Shakespearean comedy. Watch Twelfth Night. You'll find it very funny. I know I did. Thank you all for tuning in to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio. We'll be back next week as we continue to explore the works of William Shakespeare. In the meantime, as always, keep it barred to the bone. Bye-bye.